0: Lord, I, we, we thank you for what, what you've done for us. There are times in life when uh, tragedy hits. I, I was reminded of that yesterday, just driving by that hotel. And uh, that's been quite a while now. But a lot of people's lives were changed forever. A lot of people died. A lot of people were scarred, friends, family members. There are times in life, Lord, that um, that, that our lives are are. Are interrupted and we are shocked by what occurs. Um, sometimes it's things like that that uh, need to happen in order to get our attention uh, towards you. We we get so comfortable, we get so busy. We're trying to make a, a living. We're um, we're on the go, and sometimes, Lord, you interrupt our lives. Uh, you do this, Lord, all the time with tragedies. You do this with uh, natural disasters. We, we think back to uh, the whole Katrina thing. Um, a lot of, lot of things. We, 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 we saw a lot of people displaced. We saw a lot of people hurt. A lot of people died. But, Lord, your ways are not our ways. And it will be interesting to be in heaven and find out how many people came to know you through that Disaster. Maybe people who've been ignoring you and uh, had nothing to do with you and knew the truth and knew the gospel would not respond to you. And sometimes, Lord, you have to paint us into a corner because we're so self absorbed and we are so full of ourselves and we think we know best. Lord, uh, every day is not a tragedy. Uh, every day we receive grace and mercy, and everything that we have is from your good hand. Those of us who have jobs, we thank you for work that we can uh, uh, provide for our families, that we we get paychecks and we can pay our bills. Uh, that is a gift from you. Deuteronomy 8.18 comes to mind. It is he who gives you the power to make wealth. And the guys that are out of work, Lord, it's a difficult time for them. Uh, it's not where they want to be. They want to provide. They want to uh, be out there contributing and we pray for them that you would go ahead of them and make a way for them and that in the interim you'll provide for them and show them your greatness we, we pray for wives who struggle when husbands are out of work because financial security is so important to them that that this might be a time where faith can grow and we can see your goodness we thank you for health we thank you for children we thank you for grandchildren uh, a lot of times, Lord, we get overwhelmed and we start looking at all the negatives, but you have done so much for us. Don't ever lose our, our thankful hearts. Don't ever lose our thankful spirits. Israel got in trouble in the wilderness when they, when they began to complain and they began to murmur. Don't let, us, don't let us get there in that place. Now help us to learn from this guy tonight, Lord. Here's a man that had unbelievable potential, but he, he, he absolutely ruined his life by a series, uh, uh, one after another, of stupid moves. We, 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 we've all done that to a degree, but Lord, the whole point of making mistakes is that we might learn from them, and that we might grow, and that we might adjust, and we might become better men. That's our prayer. Give us teachable hearts as we get into this study tonight. We'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Samuel, and we're going to be in 1 Samuel 13. If you're here with us um, for the first time, we're in a series that we're calling Snapshots of Stupid. Uh, Kind of a a real inviting title, real warm, real fuzzy. Uh, We want you to feel good about yourself. Um, Now, you you know what? What is this Snapshots of Stupid thing? Actually, what it is, we're looking at men in the Scripture. And we're trying to learn from their lives and what happened to them. We've all done stupid. We've all got a backlog of of stupidity. Uh, The great thing about Christ is that he not only saves us from our sin, but he saves us from our stupidity. And and so much of what happens to us uh, in life is because of bad decisions and bad choices. We, how many times, have said to ourselves, I can't believe I did something so stupid. I can't believe I said something. I said something so stupid. One of the points, one of the purposes of the Christian life uh, is is not just to grow old in Christ. The the purpose is to grow up in Christ. Uh, To grow old in Christ, you don't have to do anything. You just have to get up every morning. You just have to breathe, and you'll grow old in Christ. And we've all met people who are very proud of the fact, well, I've been a Christian for 48 years, or I've been a Christian for 62 years. That's great. But I've seen guys that have been Christians for 62 years and, and you wonder, well, why are you are still in diapers? Because they've never grown up, they've just grown old. This all comes down to a teachable spirit. We've all screwed up, we've all made mistakes, we all have things we wish we could go back and change. We all, all, all have said things, we wish we could take it back because it hurt somebody that we, that we loved. We wish we could do that. We wish we could go back with a huge eraser and erase it, but we can't. But if we're teachable, we can learn from those experiences. And God has given us some biographies in Scripture of of some men in significant places who went through events not unlike what some of us go through. They lived at a different time, but they had the same fears and worries and concerns and anxieties that that you have and that I have. Uh, Some of these guys learned from the snapshot that we'll look at in their life of stupid. But other guys didn't learn from the snapshot. Now, we want to learn. We want to be teachable. We want to grow up. We want to press on. Paul said, forgetting what lies behind, I press forward. I press on. So that's our focus. Christ covers our sin. He covers our past. He covers our stupidity. But, but we're still walking through life. So this week, I want to avoid stupid. This week, what I want is not stupid. I want wisdom. So that's why one reason tonight we're going to look at Saul. Saul is one of the most confusing and disturbing men in all the scripture. His life, uh, quite frankly, uh, his life was a train wreck. Uh, a, a guy who had tremendous potential. Uh, Herbert Lockyer has just a little synopsis on Saul. And here's what, here's what uh, Lockyer here says. He says, no man among Bible men had so many chances thrust upon him to make a success of life, and no man ever missed so many of them. Saul not only missed great opportunities, he deliberately abused them. His son rose in splendor, but set in a tragic night. The downgrade of his life is the old familiar story of pride, egotism, and the abuse of power leading to moral degradation and ruin. Here are the steps down the ladder, Lockyer says. Number one, he was a man anointed and filled with the Spirit, 1 Samuel eleven 6. Two, in his early years, he was humble and practiced self control, 1 Samuel 10 22. Three, self will restricted his influence. You can run right over that and miss it. Self will. What did Jesus say? How did Jesus pray? Not. My will, but thine be done. Self-will restricted his influence for Samuel 13:12. Um, number four, he became disobedient and was guilty of rash vows for Samuel 15. Jealousy I think this is five prompted him to hunt and harm David for Samuel 18. Are we on six? He patronized the superstition he had forbidden, 1 Samuel 28. Next one. Wounded in battle, he ended up a suicide, 1 Samuel 31. And then he sums it up this way having already destroyed his moral life, he ultimately destroyed his physical life. What a tragedy. And this was a man who was anointed by God to become the first king of Israel. We're going to look at a snapshot tonight that is in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13. And what is happening here is that there is a situation where Saul and the nation of Israel uh, are being threatened. Um, Before we jump into this, I, I need to remind you that sort of our Umbrella verse, sort of our banner verse for this series, snapshots are stupid. It's 1 Timothy 4.16. And 1 Timothy 4.16, there's a phrase in there that Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy's his young pastor. Paul's the old apostle. Paul's the mentor. Paul is the coach. Timothy's the young guy. Paul's got the wisdom. Paul's got the experience. Timothy's just getting started. And in 1 Timothy 4.16, one phrase stands out. Paul says this to young Timothy. He says, pay close attention to your life and to your teaching. Different translations state it different ways. But pay close attention to your life or watch over your life or watch out for your life and what you believe Two things we have to, as men, we have to pay close attention to. And, and there's a lot of things we have to pay close attention to because we've got so many responsibilities and so many things that, that, uh, that come into our lives and so many things that we are dealing with. It's just the way it works in, in this, in this fast paced culture that we live. But we can't get so um, sidetracked with all of this and this and this and this that we forget to pay close attention to our lives, how we live, how we think how we act, how we make decisions. Pay close attention to that, Timothy. Paul said, watch your life. Saul did not watch his life. And I'll tell you what else he didn't watch. He didn't watch what he believed. He got in trouble because he didn't watch what he knew to be true from the word of God. He didn't watch it carefully. He knew it. He just didn't apply it. So, how do you grow old in Christ instead of growing up in Christ? Well, you can come to Bible studies and, you know, have a big Bible and notes and all that jazz, and you got, you know, all Chuck stuff and CDs and J. Vernon McGee, and you got the whole thing. But you can still grow old in Christ and not grow up. Because, see, you know the truth, you just don't do truth, you don't apply truth. We can't let that happen to ourselves. That's the trap of Satan that he would like to get us into. Uh, those uh, us Bible guys, guys that love the word of God. Oh, we're going to get into the scriptures. We're going to get into the Greek. Get into the Hebrew. Get into the Portuguese. We'll get into it all. <laughs> Whatever there is, we're getting into it. And that's fine with the enemy as long as you just don't do anything with it. You know the tense. You know the aorist, You know this. The pluperfect. great. Wonderful. Just don't apply it to your life. Just be a walking egghead. That's good with him. So we see Saul, and he's in a situation here where he's in trouble. And they're the big-time enemies of Israel during this period were the Philistines. So what's happening here in 1 1 Samuel thirteen? Let's pick it up in verse 5. Now, the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen. Pretty good group of boys, wouldn't you say? A little intimidating. And people like the sand, which is on the seashore in abundance. Well, that's descriptive. And they came up and camped in Mishmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, Then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. They're intimidated. They're scared to death. They're hiding out. They're they're going into the subway shelters. I mean, they're calling FEMA. FEMA doesn't answer the phone, but they're still calling them. They're worried. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. They're they're running is what they're doing. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Now, he's the new king. And it says, "Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him." Now let's pick this up. Why was he waiting seven days? Flip back to chapter 10, verse eight. What's happening here is that in 10 is that Saul has been anointed king of Israel. You see that in 101. Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Is not the Lord anointing you a ruler over his inheritance? So he's the new king of Israel. Then you go to verse 8, and Samuel tells him this. He says, And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Okay? Those were his instructions. New king, the prophet, the priest, Samuel says, the judge says, here's what you do. So that takes us to 1 Samuel 13, verse 8. Now he waited seven days, according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But catch this. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. That is a snapshot of stupid right there. Because he wasn't a priest. He was a king. And he knew that kings don't make sacrifices. Priests make sacrifices in the Old Testament economy. This is is classic God. Verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold... Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at uh, uh, Michmash, therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. He didn't force himself. See how he's trying to weasel out of this thing? This is just like, uh, this is just like in the Garden of Eden. Satan tempts Eve. She gives in. She goes, gets Adam to go for it. They realize they're in sin. They realize their nakedness. They cover themselves up. They're hiding from God. God comes looking for them. God comes looking for them. And by the way, God knew where they were. You know that, don't you? God's not up there going, where the heck did they go? God, <laughs> oh, gone it. They were just here a minute ago. He knew where they were. And he comes calling to them. Now, by the way, interestingly enough, who is it that God calls out to to talk to them about sin? He calls out to Adam, but who sinned first? Eve. Why didn't he call out to Eve? Because God's not a feminist, that's why. He called out to the man. Because God... Did you like that one? That's pretty good. <laughs> I kind of like that myself, actually. He called out to the man because he made the man first. And God has called men... To be responsible leaders of their families. God wants men leading in the family, and God wants men leading in the church. It's not a real popular today in evangelicalism, and it just happens to be in the Word of God. So he calls out to Adam. And then what does Adam start explaining to himself when he says uh, Adam says, well, 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 this woman whom you gave to me. Amazing, isn't it? We've all done that. Okay, back to Samuel 13. He forces himself, he says, and and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, verse 13, you have acted foolishly. Could we say this? You have acted stupidly. You big dumb ox, what the heck do you think you're doing? It's in the Hebrew, guys. (laughs) It's not... But that's the sense. What is wrong with you? You've acted stupidly, you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord now, catch this. For now, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. What was Samuel's problem? What was Samuel's problem? Why didn't Samuel show up? That's a great question. The question was, what was Samuel's problem? Why didn't Samuel show up at, at, at the appointed time? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. You know what's interesting to me? A lot of commentators have speculated that Samuel didn't show up on purpose to test him. Now, we don't know if that's true or not. But I'll tell you something. I will tell you this. If Samuel was delayed for some legitimate reason and couldn't get there, then I'll tell you this. Who delayed Samuel. God did, and it was God who was testing Samuel. The providence of God. Huh? Testing Saul. What did I say? Thank you for catching that. The stupidity is spilling over. (laughs) So, hey, Samuel says, hey, man, your kingdom's not going to endure. You could have had this thing forever. Now, who did God eventually give the kingdom to forever, David. Now fourteen. We we could unpack this one all night. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. All right, let's back up and take a take a look at this guy, Saul. Because we, we see the stupidity, we see the tragic. Tragic move that he made. Um, l- l- let, me give you, let me give you three broad observations about this guy, about Saul. Number one, Saul had everything except a heart for God. I'll say it again. Saul had everything except a heart for God. Uh, why don't you flip back to chapter 9, if you would please. Verse 2. Find out a little bit about Saul. It's talking about his father. In verse one, it says, He had a son whose name was Saul. Now, catch this a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any other people. Uh, Saul had been given some great attributes, He, he, he was a big guy. He's a good-looking guy. He was—he uh, uh, just stood out. Walk into a room, everybody had notice him. Who is that guy? Here's here's what I sense about reading about Saul. So I think Saul looked like a leader. Don't you? That's sure the—that's sure the sense I get. He looked like a leader. Big guy, good-looking guy, handsome guy. You know, some guys just look like they know what they're doing. But leadership is not ever an issue of the external. Leadership is never uh, uh, leadership is never an issue of um, of size, of um, of demeanor. You, you guys, you you've, you remember the studies that were done with about the Kennedy and Nixon debate, and you know. First time that was really a big deal on TV. And and Kennedy just was, he looked good on camera. And Nixon, Nixon never looked good. I mean, he just didn't. Kind of a guy just wasn't real good looking. And he had that five o'clock shot. And, and, you know, he just kind of looked not not the kind of guy you gravitate towards. Uh, And and so we've been in our culture ever since then, politicians have been real aware. And we've gotten into this whole spin thing, and we've gotten into this whole deal of, of, of giving the appearance. Of giving the appearance. So, guys who are notorious, um, you know, womanizers, when it's time to get their campaigns going, uh, and this has been going on for a long time now, they, they get their, you know, PR firms and all that, and they get their commercials, and suddenly these guys turn into Joe family. And they want to have the appearance. Oh, committed family guy. You know, person of faith. What does that mean, by the way? Faith in what? You know, some people have faith in the stock market. I'm a, I'm a person of faith. Great. Tell me what, you, what, you, what you're faith in, pal. What does that mean? Just becoming a, a phrase. But we want to give, so give the appearance of being committed to family. It doesn't matter if you are or not. We just want to give the appearance. So I'm watching Clinton the other night. I didn't want to, but he was on. <laughs> and I'm watching this, and I'm watching this guy, and, you're, and you saw it. And, you know, I'm watching his body language, and he's in that, and you know, he, he starts leaning forward in that chair and going after Chris Wallace, and he's, he's not letting up, and he's going after it, and, and I'm sitting there with Mary, and we're watching this thing. And he's saying, I'm going to tell you, when Bin Laden and I did this and I did, and I'm telling you, you have no idea, and Richard Clark book and all that. And, and then I said out loud to Mary, and I did not have sex with that woman. <laughs> because he had the same look on his face. He had the same curled lip. He had the same intensity. How much do I say here? I just say I don't believe him. You know, some guys, if their lips are moving, they're lying. (laughs) And you've met them. Now, it's easy to take shots at people. But see, the question is, what's going on in my life? When my lips are moving, what's coming out of my lips? When your lips are moving, what's coming out of your lips? That's the issue. Some guys just look good on TV. Some guys are absolutely hollow shells when it comes to principles and when it comes to character. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But, man, do they ever look good. And they can turn a phrase. And they know how to work a crowd. They know how to work people. They're just slick. They're, They're just charmers. But they've got nothing inside. That was Saul. Saul had been given basically everything. Looked like It's what I call a synthetic leader. Two kinds of leaders. Authentic leaders, synthetic leaders. We talk a lot about leadership. When I did my dissertation at Dallas Seminary, I did it on, on male leadership. And one of the things you have to do is, and when you do that kind of stuff, you've got to define your terms, of course. What is a leader and all that. And I had to go find what had been published. And I probably told you guys this before, if I I haven't talked about this for a while, but if I'm not mistaken, I found 165 published definitions of a leader. And you know what was interesting? I'd read one and I'd go, whew, that's good. Then I'd find another one and I'd go, that's really good. All 165 were just outstanding, because they all were able to hit leadership from a little different angle. The best definition of leadership that I found, the best definition of a leader I found, out of all 165, came from Howard Hendricks. You know what Hendricks said? You got a pencil, you want know, to write this down. Hendricks said this, a leader is someone who leads. Maybe you were looking for a little more than that. Guys will talk about ethos, Other definitions, they talk about influence. They would talk about substance. They would talk, hey, 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 let's just cut the crud, all right? A leader is someone who leads, not someone who looks like a leader, not someone who's tall, not some, Billy Graham in his biography talks about the first time he met Winston Churchill, and he says, the thing that struck me was how small the man was. He was a giant among men who was very small in stature hands were very very soft but there was a there was a there was a heart of iron in that man and nothing to do with size nothing to do with how you look nothing with i've often been told i i, I have a face for radio <laughs> so do you by the way larry i just thought i'd let you know that a lot of us in here ought to be on the radio because we sure as heck aren't going to make it on tv <coughs> Saul was one of those guys, he had everything. He looked like a leader, he talked like a leader, he walked into the room, he had a presence. He had everything except the heart. What did that say back in 1 Samuel? What was God looking for? God was looking for a man after his own heart. And it wasn't Saul. All he was was a synthetic, counterfeit, airbrushed, Every word coached. Every poll read leader. Second observation about Saul. By the way, what, what's the definition of a leader? A leader is someone who what? Lead. You just lead. You don't announce you're a leader. You don't throw around your business cards. I was at a luncheon a long time ago and a guy handed me a business card. I've never forgotten this guy's business card. It was the single most impressive business card I've ever seen. There were more titles on this business card than any other card I'd ever seen. He was founder, he was chairman, chief executive officer, founding partner. card said, over, you go the other side, and then down. (laughs) Now, there I'm exaggerating. But I'd never seen one card with that many titles in my life. Now, I don't know this guy at all. And for all I know, he was a sterling leader. But here's something we need to say. Titles don't make you a leader. A degree doesn't make you a leader. PhD doesn't make you a leader. I was in a bookstore a few weeks ago and I was looking at a book and this lady came up to me. She said, that's really an excellent book. I said, oh, good. I said, good. She said, I've read it several times. He said, she said, this man's a graduate of Harvard. I said, well, then he's gonna have to get some credibility with me. <laughs> She said, Oh, you're one of those. I said, Yeah, I kind of am. I said, I liked Harvard in the old days when they believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she walked away and kind of left me alone. I don't know. I have no idea. But you see, it's not your title, it's not your. Uh... You know the thing about authentic leaders? Um, they don't need a title to lead. They don't need a title to do the right thing. They're not looking to see if they're on camera. They just do the right thing. And they do what they should do next. Uh, let's, let's go back to Saul. Second observation. Big picture, number two. Uh, got to explain this one to you. Saul was unwilling to let God Write the story of his life. I'll say that again. Saul was unwilling to let God write the story of his life. I picked up that phrase from Steve Saint. Uh, Steve Saint, his father was Nate, Nate Saint, one of the five missionaries uh, murdered by the uh, Awka Indians back in, what was it, 55, 56. Um, I had the privilege of speaking at this conference in Kansas City with Steve. And, and what a story he has and what a story he tells. And if uh, the movie, The End of the Spear is out, or his book, "Into End of the Spear is phenomenal. The book is phenomenal. And uh, the movie is very moving. But to get the whole thing, you've got to read the book. Uh, Steve uses this phrase that, that as believers, we have to be willing to let God write the story of our lives. And see, oftentimes, here's what I see with Saul. Saul wanted to write his own story. Uh, When I say that, I say it for four reasons. Number one, he wanted the pen. Instead of letting God write it, he wanted the pen. He wanted to set the margins on the paper. He wanted to draw the lines. He wanted to draw the parameters. He didn't want to do it God's way. Uh, Saul wanted to create the outline of his own story. He wanted to put it all together without God's help. Uh, I'll tell you what else he wanted to do. He wanted to control the results of the story. Uh, Steve Saint talks about uh, living down in Ecuador, and every day uh, his dad, after breakfast, would pull out this old yellow uh, little, I call it a Piper Cub. I'm not sure that's the exact, but this just old, flimsy plane. His dad had. It was painted bright yellow. And he said, you know, most dads pull a, um, a car out of the garage. My dad would pull this Piper Cub. And he'd get the prop going and jump in and get it going, and he'd take off. And then he said, every afternoon, 4, 435, and my dad would fly off into the jungles. But, but I'd listen. I'm playing. I'm five years old. I'm, and all of a sudden, I'd hear, I'd hear just a hum. And then I look out on the horizon, and I'm looking, looking, and then I see the dot. And it gets bigger, and it gets bigger, and bigger. I get all excited because my dad was coming home. And he talks about the day his dad took off, and and his dad was going to be gone two days. He knew that, so he didn't expect him. The next day, though, he was looking for his dad, looking for the dot, listening for the hum. And there was no dot, and there was no hum. And then the next day, there was no dot, and there was no hum. Dad didn't show up. And the next day, all these people started coming to their house. And, and some neat friends of his dad, and he was really sad that his dad wasn't there to see all his friends. And it was that day that his mom had to pull him into the back room and tell him that his daddy was never coming home. And that his daddy would never bring the plane back. But these Aka Indians had uh, spirit his daddy and his four friends to death. And he talks about how devastating that was for him as a five-year-old boy and the struggles he had with the goodness of God. But then years later, those same men that speared his dad helped him baptize his kids in that same river where they killed his dad. Isn't that interesting? And then in 1994, Steve was a business guy. and Anyway, he wound up going back. His His Aunt Rachel, who was his father's um, sister, after they killed the missionaries, she went down there and moved in with these people and just loved them and lived with them for the rest of her life. Uh, When she died, I think it was 94, and he went down there to to make funeral preparations, those leaders who had killed his father ask him. They call him Stevie Boy. Stevie Boy, you got to come back. You got you to live with us because Aunt Rachel's gone. He picks up his wife and kids and goes down there and lives for a couple years. And then after a while, he realizes what's happening is they're starting to depend on him and they're not becoming self-reliant. So it's time to leave. He leaves, comes back. He's not sure what God's going to have him do. His wife says, you know what I think is going to happen, Steve? I think you're going to write. He'd never written anything in his life. She said, I think you're going to be doing some speaking. He wasn't a speaker. Then he tells a story about uh, his his only daughter uh, when she was 19 announcing she was going to go with a music group and do a Christian tour. And he didn't like that idea because she was going to be away from home and he really loved her. It was his little girl. And he said... Listen, sweetheart, you'd do better being in college, and, and you know, you're know you not going to have that great of an impact. It's little churches and not a lot of people. And she said, Daddy, you know what you'd tell me? It, 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 you've always told me if just one person comes to Christ, it's worth it. And he said, I hate that when they turn it on you. <laughs> he said, it was the hardest year of my life because she was gone. And then she came home, and I had just brought, I forget the gentleman's name, but one of the chief elders that had killed his dad who had become a believer, they were doing some speaking, and they just brought him back to the States. And they're at the airport, and they made a sign. And this little Aka guy, who's five foot three, he's at the Orlando airport with his earplugs and his feathers, and, and they're all there. And he had a sign, but he can't read, so it was upside down. And he's waiting for her to come, and when she comes off the plane, he hugs her, and it was just great. So it was really sweet to get his daughter back. And this Indian had helped baptize his daughter. Well, they have dinner, they go back to the house, and everybody goes to the room. And then uh, Steve and his wife go in, and they're just in the bedroom with their daughter, just talking. Hadn't seen her for a year. And as they're talking, she says, you know, Daddy, she said, would you pray for me? I've got a headache. And he, you know, a headache. Why don't you take a couple, you know. We well, said, sure, sweetheart, I'll pray for you and they prayed and he asked the Lord to touch her and take away the headache and he opened his eyes and she just died from a cerebral hemorrhage. They call 911. The ambulance shows up. And this Aka Indian elder does not understand what's going on. He thinks and, and they want to put needles in her arm and he goes into his attack mode on these paramedics to protect her. He doesn't understand. They rush her to the hospital. Steve takes him along with the family to the hospital. When they're in the hospital, he's, Steve's got to hold to While they're trying to save her, he's got to restrain this guy. And then they look and say, Steve, she's gone. And then Steve, in that moment, has to explain. He, he said, and all of a sudden, the Aka elder... Gets it. And and his whole countenance changes from one of concern and worry and anxiety and fear and, and defending the girl. And he looks at Stevie and he goes, he goes, Stevie boy, Stevie boy, it's okay. It's okay. Jesus, who gave his blood and and who told me about the new trail, and I don't need to go to the altar. he's take remember what you told me about the end trail? We go to heaven. She's in heaven with Jesus. And he said, it was really ironic, because in the worst moment of his life, the man who killed his father was the same man that God used to comfort him with the truth of the gospel in his halting way in his, deep, in his weakest moment. That's the sovereignty of God. And, and, you know what, and you know what Steve Saint said? He said, I've had people, he said, it was pretty tough to lose my dad when I was five. If I, if I could write the story, if I could write the story of my life, I'd take the pen and I'd do a different outline, and I wouldn't lose my dad. I struggled with that for years. But he said, can I tell you something? I will tell you to the point that I have come now. I don't believe that God permitted my, my dad's death. And I don't believe that God um, allowed my, God's de- uh, my dad's death. He said, you know what I believe? I believe God planned my father's death and those four men because of the thousands of people who have personally come to me and told me that it changed their lives. Have you ever heard Chuck tell the story about when he's newly married and he's going overseas and he's pretty upset about it? And his brother, his older brother handed him this book through Gates of Splendor And didn't ask him to read it, he told him to read it. And he didn't want to read it. And he didn't want, finally, he picked it up. Changed his life. See, guys, Saul was not willing to let God write the story, he wanted control. Uh, At at some point, you know what we have to do as leaders? Here's the thing with leaders The, the, the last thing I said about Saul there was that he wanted to control the results. I like what Ron Allen says about Saul. He says this, and and this will make sense to a lot of you guys, because a lot of us who are leaders, we are very result-oriented. We love results, and we want results. We set goals, and we want to achieve the goals, don't we? We set objectives, and we want to hit the objectives, Uh, Here's what Ron Allen says. This is great. He calls it a craving for results. Saul lost his kingdom because of his craving. You ever crave something? You ever crave brownies and milk? Right now, you just started. It just... Yeah, Krispy Kremes, milk. I'll meet you down there afterwards. Saul lost his kingdom because of his craving for results. He wanted to defeat the Philistines so much that he offered a burnt offering, which it was not his place to do. He was determined to do things in his way and according to his timing rather than God's. So then God found a man after his own heart, a man who would get results, but do so by following God's plan. Now you know what we all make mistakes, and we might all make errors here. But you know what the sad thing about Saul is that Saul remained stupid. I gave you the quote a couple weeks ago from Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday said, "A sinner can repent, but stupid is forever." If you make a mistake, if you fool around—I mean, if you do something really dumb—you can repent and say, "Lord Jesus, forgive me," and you know, and you get remorse and regret and all that, and you come to the Lord in repentance, you're forgiven. That's the great news of the gospel. But if you're not willing to do that, you're stupid. And you're going to keep digging yourself into a hole that you're going to regret. That's what we talked about last week. Flip over to 1 Samuel 15. I want to show you what happens later with this guy. You would have thought he would have learned from this, you know, offering the sacrifice. You're not supposed to offer the sacrifice, dumbbell. You know that. Samuel does the sacrifice. Uh, Look at 1 Samuel 15, and and I want you to notice the the pattern. Um, I'm in 14. No wonder I couldn't find it. 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people of Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel how he set himself against him uh, on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. So so God's going to punish this guy and his nation. Now go, Saul, and strike Amalek, and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That's pretty clear, isn't it? You may not like it, but it's clear. Verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. In other words, they said, guys, there's some really good stuff here. Gosh, you know, there's a new Mercedes, and that guy's got a Rolex. I mean, gosh, what'll little hurt. Best of the livestock they kept. Go to verse 13. Samuel came to Saul. Actually, in 12, Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And then 13 says, <clears throat> Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. He's saying the right stuff. I've carried out the command of the Lord. Now, this guy is a liar. I have carried out the command of the Lord. And then note, uh, no, note Samuel's response. Uh, that's 16. We've got to pick up 15. Saul said, they have brought them from the... Uh, oh, oh, 14, thanks. I'm sorry. I'm trying to move too fast. But Samuel said, after he says, I've carried out the command of the Lord, Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Now catch, this is classic. This is classic. Verse 20. This guy could be on CNN. This guy could be on Fox. Then Saul, this guy could be on meet the press. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. This sucker's if his lips are moving, he's lying. I did obey the voice of the Lord. And then he says, it all depends on how you define is. (laughs) Kind of the same sense. Isn't this pathetic? And isn't this sad? Whew. I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission in which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and utterly destroyed the Amalek. But the people, but the people took some of the spoil. Uh, the, the, the sheep and the oxen, the choice of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice. Once again, he's real big on sacrifice. To the Lord your God at Gilgal. Sam, now catch this. This is right in the chops. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Uh, 23, he says, for rebellion, Saul, and you're a rebel. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. And and you know what? Saul would get into that when he met with the witch in Endor. Because an insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. Then Saul said to Samuel in 24, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in in your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. You know, I'm not sure that's true. In fact, I'm pretty sure it isn't true. He didn't listen to the people, he listened to what he wanted to do, it was his own deal. Uh, those of us that are pretty strong-willed and are pretty aggressive and have our agendas and have our goals and objectives we got to be real careful guys you know what we have to if you're wired like that like i am you know what you got to watch yourself really carefully you got to watch your life you got to watch how you live you got to watch how you think you got to watch how you rationalize here's my third observation about Saul big picture Saul was quick with the excuses. He was quick with the excuses. I mentioned Ron Allen in his observations on this. He points out four excuses that Saul comes up with back in the original text when he sacrificed and he shouldn't. His first four excuses were the soldiers were scattering, Samuel has not come as promised, that's two, two, Um, Three, the Philistines were gathering their forces. Four, there was imminent danger of an attack from the Philistines. Those were four excuses that he put up. Uh, You know, as I looked at that, those were excuses, but I'll tell you what else they were. They were also pressures. They were pressures. They were real. His guys were scattering. Uh, uh, Samuel hadn't shown up. Uh, The Philistines were gathering their guys together, and there was imminent danger of a Philistine attack. And you know what? That was real. That was a, he used it as an excuse, but it was a pressure. Sometimes, here's what happened, guys. We get under pressure. And what happens is, we let the pressure dictate the decision. You know what? Paul was always accused of things. One of the things that Paul was accused of in Romans chapter 3, verse 8, Flip over there with me if you would. One of the things that that Paul was accused of, and this can fly right under the radar, is is indeed what Saul himself did. In Romans 3.8, here's what we read. And Paul says, And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, catch this, let us do evil that good may come. In other words, Paul says, hey, some people slanderously say that I say this. And what is it that I say? Let us do evil that good may come. Paul never said that, and Paul didn't believe it. But that's the story of Saul's life. Let me do evil. Let me disobey the Lord. And instead of not taking the spoil and the cattle, let me take it. Because, he, oh, then we can sacrifice. Oh, yeah, there you go. We can sacrifice. No, no, no. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And, guys, here's what happens. We get pressured. Let me, let me give you two points here. Let, let me give you two bullet points as we wrap this up. Here's number one. Here's a life lesson. Here are two life lessons. Because I gave you three shots, and then here are two life lessons. Number one. Great pressure can provide an excuse for doing wrong. We get pressure, circumstances. We start getting hemmed in. Our, 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 our chests are getting tight, and we all know pressure. We all and sometimes pressure is just unbelievably hard. Saint Augustine wrote these words a number of years ago. He says, "For the world is like an olive press." You got to get this in your head: a big machine that they, you know, sort of, so to speak, an olive press. But you can see olive presses over in Israel in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they take those olives, and it's, it's not a machine with iron, but it's a big stone, and it's hollowed out. And they'd put those olives in there. And then they would fit another round stone inside that bowl. We're talking something about like this. And it was a very heavy, heavy, you know, they, they'd honed it and got it just right. And then what would happen, they put those olives in, and then they come in with that press, and then they press that sucker down. They'd press the oil out of that. Now, catch this. Augustine says, For the world is like an olive press, and men are constantly under pressure. If you are the dregs of the oil, you are carried away through the sewer. See, they'd get rid of the, of the, of the slime and the pits and all that. They had a way for that to escape and go out through their sewer. But if you are true oil, you remain in the vessel. But to be under pressure, catch this, is inescapable. Observe the dregs, observe the oil, and choose. For pressure takes place through all the world. War, siege, famines, the worries of state. He's writing this when Christians were under great persecution. We all know men who grumble under these pressures and complain. But they speak as the dregs of oil, which later run away to the sewer. Their color is black, for they are cowards. They lack splendor. But there is another sort of man who welcomes splendor. He is under the same pressure, but he does not complain. For it is the friction which polishes him. It is the pressure which refines him and makes him noble. We're all under pressure. The pressure can ruin you if you so choose, or the pressure can refine you and help you grow up in Christ. Uh, Great pressure should never be an excuse for doing wrong. Second, whatever I'm calling this, what do I call it? Life lesson, life point, life way, that's a store somewhere. Here's the second one. Great fear can trigger impulsive decisions that will be regretted later. Great fear can trigger an impulsive decision that will be regretted later. Recently, I was, um, I, I was doing a conference and met this pastor and had lunch, and I really didn't know him, and uh, he, he was the pastor there, and we were talking and getting to know the guy, how long he'd been here, and he told me how long he'd been there, over 20 years, And uh, as we were talking, he he said, my predecessor. And I said, by the way, who was your predecessor? And he gave me the man's name and rang a bell with me because I had read a book that this man had written years ago when I was in seminary. And I said, really, he he was the pastor here before you were? He goes, yeah. I said, tell me about him. He said he was a remarkable man. He was, uh, he just walked into a room and there was a presence about him. He said he was really a striking-looking guy, real handsome guy. Looked like a million dollars. He just looked like a leader. He said, Guy was an amazing, an amazing preacher. Amazing. One of the best I've ever heard in my life. He said the guy could have easily been a senator. Guy guy, guy, could have been a, a president. He was that caliber of guy. Just look like a leader. A guy like that, you just say, man, I'd like to know that guy. He said, so impressive. He said he left here and he went to another church in another part of the country. Uh, Had some moral failures. I said, really? He said, yeah. And then he took a gun and shot himself in the head. And I thought, Saul, what a sadness, what a shame. First Samuel thirty-one, four. Uh, Saul fell on his own sword, and as um, Lockyer had pointed out, guys, let me give you the line again. Actually, this could be the line we write over Saul's life, having destroyed his moral life he ultimately destroyed his physical life. Once again, may I say this to you? None of this ever needed to happen. I recently had a conversation with a guy who's been in the ministry um, probably for uh, 25 years, and he's having a significant ministry now. Um, We had a meal together, and we're talking and different things, and you know, Really enjoyed the time. Sharp guy. As we were talking, he said, "You know, I got to tell you something." He said, uh, "About four years ago, he said, I, I was, I was just churched out. I, I still had some bitterness from when I was in a real fundamentalist and legalistic Bible school, and I had some issues to work through.' And, and you know what? I was, I was kind of disappointed in, in where I was in life and with my ministry and." Hadn't really seen the favor of God. And I just and, and and just kept building and kept building. I was losing my motivation. And he said, I went home and and my wife also works in this large church ministry and went home that night. And I looked at her and I said, uh, uh, I'm leaving. I'm leaving you and I'm leaving the church. And. Uh, he said, She said to me, no, you're not. We're going to get some help. And you're not leaving, and we're going to call their head guy right now. And you're going to tell him what's going on. And he didn't want to do it. But you know what he did? He did it. got this guy over there that was head over the whole ministry in the church and they get together and they talk and he said, let me tell you what's going on with you. He says, you are absolutely worn out and burned out. You got some issues. He says, you got nothing left to give. You're out of gas. Uh, But here's what you need. Uh, You've been here how many years? We're going to give you a six-month sabbatical. That's what we're going to do. And... uh, And you know what? God refreshed him, got his perspective back. I'll tell you, this guy's going gangbusters right now. He's touching lives all over. It's just incredible. But after he told me that story, I said, you know, i got to tell you something. I'm doing this series called Snapshots of Stupid. (laughs) And you know what? You know what? And this happens to every guy that I know. There's a point where you're on the verge of doing something really stupid. And I said, you know know, what's really great? First of all, is your wife confronted you. And secondly, you listened to her. And later I talked to her. This is going to freak some people out, but I'm going to tell you what she told me. I was talking to her later. And I said, you know, it was really an amazing story. And she said, said, well, yeah. She said, I said, it was so good you confronted him. She said, well, what did he say? And I said, well, he, he basically said, you said you're not doing that. And she said, no, I said, what the hell are you thinking? And we're there in the church lobby. And she said, I think I shocked him so much by saying hell that he didn't know what to do. And she said, then I said another word that starts with B and then another word that starts with S. You need me to spell that out for you? And she said, I think it shocked him so much he didn't know what to do. You know what? Sometimes we need someone to love us enough to hit us in the chops with a two-by-four and say, what the hell are you doing? And you know what that does? It keeps us from hell. Hell on this earth. You may be a believer and you may not go to hell when you die, but I'll tell you what, you can sure dig your own hell right here on this earth. I don't know where you are. You don't know where I am. But when we hit those points of stupid, you know what, guys? We've got to listen to the one who understands. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. We've all done this stupid thing, but we want to grow up. Thank you for grace and mercy and forgiveness. Thank you when we come to you, you never turn us away, no matter how many times we've messed up. But, Lord, what you're looking for in our lives, you're looking to train us. You're looking to teach us. You're you're looking for us to turn to you. You you know the pressures. You know the pressures we're under. You know it when we're out of gas and when we lose our joy. And you know when we we get weary and well-doing and we're just about ready to check it in. You, You know all about us. But you want us to come to you. And you'll always make a way of escape from the pressure if we'll just come to you. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So we come. In Jesus' name we pray.